Welcome to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez, and this platform is dedicated to sharing the stories of language professionals, that is, the interpreters and translators from around the world. This show aims to highlight not just the profession, but mainly the people behind the amazing work. These are your stories about our profession, and this is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Liberty Language Services, here today to bring you a big announcement. Liberty Language Services is excited to announce the launch of its sister company, the Academy of Interpretation, an online education and learning platform for the language services industry. The AOI's mission is to expand access to educational courses while establishing a standard of quality and professionalism. The Academy of Interpretation was founded to address the widespread problem of untrained interpreters working in the field. The AOI offers professional accredited courses for interpreters and serves as a platform for organizations to refer their interpreters for training. The Academy of Interpretation is offering Brandy Interpreter listeners a 10% discount on all courses using the discount code AOI10BTI. This code cannot be combined with any other discounts. But check out the episode notes for more information about the Academy of Interpretation. Liberty Language Services is a woman and minority-owned language services company that recently celebrated 10 years of providing language access services, and they're currently hiring freelance interpreters for a variety of languages. To find out more about Liberty or to apply, check out the episode notes. Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast, where I share your stories about our profession. So glad you're joining me today. I want to send a special shout out right now to Miriam Andrade. Instagram handle is at Miriam Interprets and Elizabeth Sanchez or Interpreter in Oregon and Mari at MHC Interpreting for not only rating the show, but also, of course, taking that screenshot and sharing it on their social media platforms, on Insta specifically. Thank you, ladies, for the support. I appreciate you. Thank you so very much. And if you've not already done so, please take a minute or two to head on over to either Apple Podcasts or Spotify now and review this show. It's an amazing way to help support it and also so that others can easily find it. So if you enjoy the conversations or you really appreciate the resources that the guests share, please head on over to rate and review the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. And if you take that screenshot and share it on your social media and tag me, you too will get a shout out on the next episode. All right, let's jump right on in. Today's episode brings us Annalisa Nash Fernandez. Annalisa Nash Fernandez is an intercultural strategist at Because Culture. She's a specialist in the cultural elements of technology and business. She has lived, worked, and studied in nine countries and spent most of her corporate career abroad as a banker and as an expatriate executive developing emerging markets for Kraft Foods and Philip Morris. Her expert quotes are widely featured, including by CIO Magazine and the BBC, and her articles are published across trade journals and mainstream media. She holds an MA in translation from the University of Wisconsin and a BS in international finance from Georgetown University. So, without further ado, here's Annalisa Nash Fernandez. Annalisa, thank you so much for being here today. I'm excited for this conversation. Welcome. How are you? Great. Thank you. Um, as I've told you, I'm a Big fan of Brand the Interpreter, um, actually of, of personal branding in general, um, and huge consumer of podcasts. So actually, I can't believe I'm here. It's really exciting. Thank you. Yeah, personal branding and podcasts, my two favorite things as well. 
Very excited for today's conversation. And Lisa, I think we're going to hit a lot of topics that our audience is very interested in. And if they're not yet, then they will be after our conversation today. But before we get into the nitty gritty, I'd like to know a little bit about you, Annalisa, beginning with your childhood. So I'd like to ask all of our guests on the show what you aspired to be when you grew up, if you recall. Um, you know, early on, I think I just wanted to be a dietitian like my mother. But as I started being able to evaluate and think about things, um, strangely enough, and I'm so grateful to my godparents for sending me a letter that I wrote to them, I wanted to be a Latin American banker. And that's actually what I ended up becoming for my first career. And, um, you know, had a great experience working overseas, spending a lot of time in Latin America, and then transitioning into corporate life. But um, I think I got to be what I dreamed of being as a kid and then changed the dream later on and and focused on languages and culture as a second career. Wow. That's pretty amazing. A Latin American banker. Now, did you say that was from your grandparents' behalf? Um, it's, yes, it started. I mean, the roots were, it kind of, you know, I think especially with language, it's, it's, you know, just one thing after another opens up a path for you. Um, when I was really young, my grandfather was, I, I like to think of him as one of the first corporate expatriates. He was transferred to Italy. Um, and so as a kid, I wore one of those tags around my neck and got put on a plane to the grandparents, um, which wasn't so bad because it was Italy. But I ended up kind of being thrown out to play with all the Italian kids in the backyard and just kind of learning Italian Um you know, getting my allowance in lira and understanding exchange rates. Um, and I loved that. I don't remember any Italian now, but when I started school, it made learning Spanish really easy. So Spanish became my favorite subject in school. It eventually replaced the Italian. Um, and so I was always very interested in Spanish. Um, and so when, when I was in college, I did a semester abroad, um, in Argentina. I mean, this was a very long time ago um, where I was the actually the only exchange student at the school in Cordoba, Argentina. So it was the second city of Argentina. And that was full immersion. I mean, I can go into that later if we have time, but that was my full, full immersion Spanish experience. And then I wanted to take that into the corporate world. So I, you know, became a, a banker focusing on Latin America. I was, you know, then able to work on Wall Street, advising companies in Latin America on um, accessing American capital markets, on being acquired by American companies, being part of a larger multinational corporation. And that was, you know, a good part of my work for a long time until I moved to the corporate side. Wow, that's extraordinary. I'm always ever so curious as to where things all started. And you mentioned a couple of things. Now you're talking about flying out into Italy and not growing up in a bilingual household. So where did you grow up? And what is a fond childhood memory aside from <laughs> flying solo to the grandparents? Yeah, um, I grew up in a monolingual English, all-American family. Um, I grew up in um, Southern California. And um, I had a very, I think, you know, the whole kind of now it's called a global nomad, right? But um, it used to be called, I guess, being a gypsy. That thing kind of skips generations. So my parents both grew up in very mobile families um, for economic reasons, for work reasons. So they grew up moving around a lot. So that kind of skips a generation. They bought a house and we did not move. I did not move until I went to college. Um, And then in my family, the whole global nomad thing is back (laughs) and we're moving every few years. (laughs) That's so great. And what is a fond childhood memory that you have? Is it in Southern California or is it during your travels? I would say it's during the travels. (laughs) I mean, um, I can remember being in, I guess my fond childhood memories are a little strange, you know, because I am a finance person at heart. Um, I loved getting my allowance in lira, in Italian lira, and following the exchange rates in the newspaper. I wow. was really geeky <laughs> and understanding that, wow, if I wait a few more days, then my dollars will convert to more lira. And then going to those Italian markets and, and buying things. I was just fascinated by the different way of life, by the language, by the exchange rates. And it just seemed, I mean, even today, I feel like I'm not on vacation if people are not speaking a different language. <laughs> oh, it's so beautiful. I can only imagine. I live vicariously through the travels of my guests. So that's why I always love to hear <laughs> the different experiences <laughs> abroad and things like that. What was it like 
not being raised in a bilingual household, which I know at the time, I mean, it seems so natural, right? But then you go on into a different country. And like you said, hearing the different languages, how was that different from your environment in Southern California well, with my, your parents? My parents were monolingual English. It was my grandparents that were overseas in Italy. They learned Italian. I mean, in those days, um, like I said, I think they were among the first corporate expatriates. In those days, you know, you didn't, let alone you didn't have social media, you didn't even have a telephone line in your house. There were years of wait for a telephone line. So you didn't have communication with the outside world. You made friends with the locals. You were full, full immersion. Um, and that's how they lived. And so that's how I lived, you know, um, it was a different time and, and immersion meant different things. I mean, now I actually think it is harder these days to fully immerse yourself and to learn a foreign language. Um, when I taught Portuguese at university of Wisconsin, uh, my students would go abroad to Brazil and they would come back and they really hadn't, I was really disappointed actually, most oh, of wow. them. Um, they hadn't really learned much and why, because they had, you know, they had social media, they had mm -hmm. cheap phone calls, they had a lifeline. And honestly, if, you know, when I went to Argentina, I didn't have any of that. I would go to the, you know, cabinas telefonicas, the telephone cabins and call home for three minutes. because it was so expensive once a week. Um, I didn't, I, if I had had a lifeline, if I had had Facebook and could text my parents, I absolutely would have, but I didn't have that choice. So it was this full immersion and, you know, these days it's different. And, and, you know, um, when you go abroad, it's, if you want it to be a full immersion experience, you have to work very hard to make it that way. So. Yeah. I was going to say, you have to be, it sounds like very deliberate because, yes. you know, I have heard experiences as well where, yeah, they go study abroad, but then they stay with the English speaking group. And so there is really no need for, you know, the use of that other language necessarily abroad, which I suppose is the whole point. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, it sounds like it's something that has to be very deliberate on on one's end. So you mentioned earlier, uh, very briefly, how your interest in language started. Do you recall when you said, like, I'm, I'm going to go into formal training in another language and how that was developed for you or why you said that specific language and then went off to Argentina? Um, I went to Argentina because I already spoke Spanish. And at that time, I thought my, my Spanish was so good because I got A's in all my Spanish classes. Again, not because of my skills or any innate language ability, but because I had the Italian um, boosting me up. Um, so when I, you know, I decided to go to Argentina, but I did make a choice to go to Argentina because a lot of students at my university went to Spain. They had an exchange program in Spain. And again, I saw that I was in the same classes um, with people that had come back from Spain. So I had a friend from Argentina and um, he said, listen, you could go to my school. It's in the second city of Argentina. I, I went to Georgetown, which is a Jesuit university. And this was also a Jesuit school. So he said, basically, they'll accept all the credits, which they did. It was kind of a Jesuit understanding. <laughs> um, so I enrolled at this school in, in Argentina. And, um, and that was where when I then when I got to Argentina, the first day I realized that actually my Spanish wasn't as good as I thought it was, um, because I could say everything I needed to say, but I could not understand once people spoke quickly. Um, I think that's the second level of kind of language development. I think the first level, a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, I understand everything. I just can't speak. And I think that's kind of the first level. Then you get to a level where you can say everything you want to say, but you really can't understand everything. When I was out with, you know, kids my age, college students, and, you know, they were speaking quickly. I could not, I can understand somebody on the news or my professor. I couldn't understand people my age um, in more colloquial situations. Mm. So it was really, really tough. It was like death by fire. And like I said, there was no lifeline. You know, there was, you know, my dictionary and no phone calls. In fact, it was so rare in those days. Um, it was a very long time ago that, um, you know, there was not only was there no social media, there was no um, cable TV or foreign newspapers. So when I would speak outside of the university context um, to a taxi driver or in a store, people thought my accent was a speech defect um, or that I was some kind of an alien. They would just stop and stare at me. Again, this is, you know, 1987 Argentina. <laughs> so in the middle of the country. So it was just, um, you know, that's what I call a 
a full immersion with just no lifeline. But anyways, the having been through that experience, I think the most painful experiences are always the most valuable. Mm. Um, so, you know, I came out of that semester in Argentina, very fluent in Spanish, um, and then wanted to work in the field where I could use the Spanish. And that's when I went into international banking. And then from there, I went to work at, um, Philip Morris and Kraft Foods, which at that time was a combined entity. And I worked in their Latin America department for a number of years and then was transferred to Brazil. Um, And in Brazil, I learned Portuguese. But again, like I had the Italian as my stepping stool to Spanish. I had Spanish as my stepping stool to Portuguese um, because at Georgetown, I actually took a really valuable course, which was called Portuguese for Spanish Speakers. So it just focused on all those little differences, just the kind of key to unlock all those differences between Spanish and Portuguese. So that class actually was really effective. And so I I arrived in Brazil speaking and was there five years. So Mm -hmm. locked that in. And then I tried to learn Catalan years later, thinking I was so great at languages and it was impossible. So now by now you've you've traveled to Italy back and forth. You're in Argentina for a semester, fully immersed, and then Brazil for five years. Talk to us about the cultures and how or what that opened up for you in terms of seeing the differences between perhaps Southern California, not sure, you know, specifically how your neighborhood was structured, but then going into these countries and and these specific neighborhoods where you're experiencing culture. What was that like for you? You know, they were all so different and at different periods of my life. So it's kind of hard to separate it out, you know, because I was, you know, in Argentina, I was a college student. In Italy, I was a kid. Um, Then in my work, you know, in Brazil, I was married, no kids. And later I was in Mexico with kids. And it was kind of, um, I was in Chile, as Santiago, Chile, single as a banker. You know, they were all kind of, you know, just such different phases of my life. Um, but I think the most important thing is, and I always focus on this first in all of my cultural training seminars is that you have to go in realizing that, you know, it's you that's different and it's more about you than about them. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I learned that pretty early that you have to really step back and assess the situation. And, you know, that's what cultural intelligence is, is all about. Yeah, I love that. And and we're actually going to get started with regards to that conversation because present day, your title is intercultural strategist. So that's why I was really interested in diving into your experiences abroad and how these experiences come into play into your professional life is actually what I'd like to get started with. So I'm interested in knowing now in the schooling specifically You do an MA in language and literature and translation. Why that specific subject, Annalisa? Um, So I had my first career in finance and banking, and then I took a few years off to have kids. Um, At the same time, it wasn't really a few years off because we were constantly moving at that point for my husband's career. And then as soon as we got settled, um, I was ready to go back to work. Uh, and I knew that I did not want to go back to work as, um, a banker or doing corporate acquisitions and working 80 hours a week. Um, plus I'd, you know, forgotten everything at that point about (laughs) finance that I'd ever learned because, you know, moving six times and having three kids will do that to you. Um, so I actually, it was funny. I'd never really thought about doing a master's in translation. I was taking my daughter all the way across town to, wasn't even a Spanish immersion school was basically a charter school um, in a Hispanic neighborhood that taught all in Spanish. And it was pretty far from our home. So I said, if I'm going to go across town, I might as well just stay downtown and volunteer interpreting at a hospital. Of course, that's what I thought I was going to do and that that would just be so easy. And of course they would love to have me, (laughs) but no, they said you need a certificate in interpreting. And when I started to look into the interpreting certificate, and then I finally decided, you know what, I'm just going to do a master's in interpreting and translation. Um, And I was living in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at the time. Um, And UWM has a great um, program. It's the Master's of Arts in Language, Literature, and Translation. 
Um, and so I, once I looked at that program, I fell in love. I said, this is my calling. This is what I want to do because, um, you know, it was already starting with the point. It wasn't obviously teaching you a foreign language. It was, which many of my friends said, why are you getting a master's in translation if you already speak Spanish? But it wasn't that at all. You know, as we in the industry know, it was all right, starting from that point of being fluent. And then how do you achieve functional and cultural equivalence? in a target language. Um, And really at the end of the day, that degree was studying culture. I mean, that was really most of it. How do we take a text or an idea or discourse from one language and one cultural context and make it resonate in another? I always really enjoy listening about changes in profession and those experiences, how you, from at least the outsider's perspective, are successful in what you're already doing. You know, you're fully immersed in this, you're traveling, uh, you take a pause to work uh, inside the home, right? And then you realize, you know, I, I'm ready, I'm ready for a change. I want to do something different. And not only is is that in itself, uh, I think a difficult realization sometimes, because for many, I think that there's a hesitance to even take action into that change in profession because you've been doing something else for so many years in thinking, what's that going to be like, right? Moving into something completely new. But I think what I also love about your story is the fact that you were very strategic about it when it came down to taking your daughter to that school and your thoughts about, well, let me just go and be, you know, a volunteer. You're thinking strategically, let me, let me go in there and volunteer. And then realizing that you can actually make a profession out of this. I, I love that story, Annalisa. And with that, I'd like to go in even further because not only did you experience a great program at uh, UWM, but there was also a point in there where as a project, I believe it was, and, and you correct me uh, with that you end up becoming a self-published author. Talk to us a little bit about that experience, how that came to be. Yes, it was in the program. The program, I I have to say, I didn't really know what I was going to do with this degree. Um, But like I said, when I first saw this program at UWM, I was fascinated by it. And, you know, I always believe just take the, instead of planning out your life five years from now, Um, you know, take the immediate next step that you're passionate about, and then that's going to take you on a new path. And that's exactly what that master's did. All of a sudden, it opened up all kinds of new doors um, for me with all of these, you know, options that I was completely unaware of academia. I mean, I was from the corporate world. I was a corporate banker um, doing M&A at a, at a multinational company. So, you know, then immersing myself in academia and becoming a teaching assistant and, you know, working as a translator in the local hospital was just a completely new world for me. And then I never thought about writing a book. I wouldn't have even known what I could write a book about, but then two things happened. Um, One, I was studying um, for the National Medical Interpreter Certification Exam, which I did through CCHI. Um, And I had to self-study because I think now they require 40 hours of training, I believe. I'm not sure. Um, But at that time, I was able to use my master's credits in translation to um, satisfy that requirement. Um, So I didn't really have access to any kind of medical interpreter classes. So I had to make my own glossary. Well, I started studying, you know, I started looking at medical dictionaries and reading through the words. And I realized as I would read through these dictionaries and training materials, wait, I know all these words, but I really didn't know them. I mean, 90% of them were cognates or like infection, infection. So they were clear, but those I knew, but then what I needed to study was that 10% or maybe even less, that was just not a cognate and it was unrecognizable and was a really technical medical term that I didn't know. So I ended up just making my own glossary of these really highly specific terms. Um, and the way I found these terms, because at the end of the day, they they weren't really in these little pocket medical dictionaries, um, is I would just listen to these YouTube videos um, 
in my car as I was driving, because I was driving like five hours a day with three kids. And I would listen to YouTube videos about medical procedures in Spanish. And as I was driving, don't try this at home, I would make a list just of, you know, every once in a while a word would pop up. I didn't know it. I'd make a list. And I basically did this for hundreds of hours and made my glossary of just those 10% of medical terms in Spanish that are not cognates. Um, I used that list to pass the CCHI. Um, I started giving it out to friends that were taking the course, um, sending it to people online. And then I take my next course at UWM, um, taught by my favorite professor, Dr. Leah Leone. And our final paper was to identify a gap in the interpreting or translation literature. Um, And then I realized that there was such a gap in this literature because I was working as an interpreter at that time at an urban hospital. And I realized that I wasn't using a medical dictionary. I was using my, you know, little list that I'd coggled together, my personal glossary, because I first bought a pocket medical dictionary. I was so excited my first day as a medical interpreter at St. Luke's Hospital. And I bought this pocket Spanish medical dictionary because, you know, as an interpreter, you don't want to carry around a huge book. I mean, that's really embarrassing if you walk into a session and you're, excuse me, let me flip through my (laughs) huge dictionary. So I had my little discrete pocket medical dictionary. But anytime a word came up that I did not know, it wasn't in that dictionary because it was too basic. And what I really needed was that huge dictionary that you could find the technical terms in. Well, they don't even sell those. There, there was one at the university library. And then the interpreter guides were more like for people such as nurses, healthcare workers that, were tr- that weren't fluent in Spanish trying to bridge the gap. So there really, there wasn't a resource for me as an interpreter that I could use. I needed just basically my glossary that was quick access of just the really technical terms. So I wrote about that as a gap in the literature for my paper. And then I said, this is the gap and let me fill it. I'm going to just publish this as a book. That is so incredible because you make it sound like so matter of fact, you know what, um, there's a need and, and I'm going to fill it. And that's in fact what you did. And, and there's so many times, I think, particularly in this show where there's a fork in the road, right? Like you either decide to take action or you decide to just admit the fact that there's a gap. You've seen it, you've identified it, but there is no action taken. And then later on down the line, you might come across someone that actually took action on that very same idea that you once upon a time had. And you perhaps think, I thought about that too. Like I should have, Mm -hmm. you know, so I find it, I find it very fascinating when an individual not only has the idea, but takes action. I think that is so great. Robert H. Schuller uh, is quoted to have said that the secret to success is to find a need and fill it, to find a hurt and heal it, and to find somebody with a problem and offer to help solve it. And the fact that you did that, regardless of the reasons why you did it, you still identified a gap and then you took action to fill it. I feel is admirable. As we know, it's not such a straightforward road, right, Annalisa, as we're trying to do these things. Uh, I need help. I'm scrambling to find interpreters for our board meeting. We have a staffed Spanish interpreter, but we need Korean, Farsi, and Arabic. Plus, we have a slew of IEP meetings coming up, most of them in exotic languages. I'm calling everywhere. I know what we need. I met the perfect translation agency at OCDE's Interpreters and Translators Conference. Certified Interpreting Services. They offer in-person and virtual services. Certified Interpreting Services? Yes. They're professional, warm, and perfect for our diverse district's needs. How do we contact them? Call or email. It's all on their website. CISinterpreters.com CISinterpreters.com That's just what we need. I'm contacting them now. Thank you for calling Certified Interpreting Services. This is Jasmine. Yeah, I tend to move quickly and break things. So um, that's kind of what I did with the book. I um, Actually, my professor said, listen, the university, when I did this paper, and I mean, it's very kind of you to say that, but at the end of the day, it kind of hit me over the head. I mean, I'd been carrying around this glossary as an interpreter in the hospital. And then I have to write this paper called what is the gap in interpreter literature? And here I am like, okay, this is the gap. I mean, I can fill it. But, um, 
I thought it would be just pretty simple. I mean, really on Amazon, um, well, there's three ways if you want to publish a book, you can get a publisher, which is nearly impossible, especially for someone like me with no background. Um, You can um, hire a publisher, which is also, um, it's like there are publishers for hire that will package everything up and you pay them to publish a book for you, um, or you can self-publish. So on Amazon, actually, it is completely free to self-publish a book. Um, All you do is upload a PDF or a Word doc. Um, You format it. um, You put a cover on it. They give you a barcode and it's done. You upload it. You put it up on Amazon. um, They will charge you. In my case, it's a paperback, $2 to print it. You set a price of say $10 and then basically you get the difference. So I said, why not? This looks pretty easy. Of course, there's a little more involved. I had to um, do a fancy cover. So I did have to hire someone to do that. I I used fiverr.com, which is this kind of gig economy site where you can pay anybody $5 to do anything. So um, a wonderful team in Bangladesh did my cover. That is all they do is covers perfectly formatted for Amazon self-publishers. And that was about it. Um, I added some sections actually on um, things that I found interesting, like just a quick interpreter protocol list, um, sections on false friends and medical lexicon, Latin medical prefixes. Again, this was a dictionary about, it was basically all of the medical lexicon in Spanish without all the cognates. So again, without words like infection, infection. So it was the 10% of the really technical stuff that you may not recognize. So it was a very short book. um, And I wanted to add these sections just to kind of round it out um, from what I had learned in my master's program and what I'd also learned by mistake, like on protocol, no one ever told me in in my interpreting sessions, I would be in a session, the healthcare provider would leave and I would stay in the room chatting with the patient about his ranch in Sinaloa with no idea that I was supposed to step out when the provider stepped out. Um, I learned that later on. And so um, I kind of made it just very simple lists of, you know, 10 protocol items for interpreters and, and some other sections. I uploaded it to Amazon. Um, I ha- asked, asked my friends for help to proofread it. Mm. Um, and for, that was mistake number one. Um, and I proofread it myself, mistake number two, because I kept finding mistakes, um, because it's, it was a dictionary that I had sourced completely organically again, from my YouTube videos, listening to them in the car and scouring massive, um, and psych- medical encyclopedias. So I said at one point, I'm just going to draw the line on all this proofreading and asking friends to look at it. I'm just going to upload it to Amazon because probably no one's going to buy it. Why am I going to waste any more time um, proofreading and asking for favors? So I uploaded the book and the next day um, I logged on to Amazon's portal and four books had sold. So the first thing I did is I called my mom. I said, mom, did you buy four of my books. And she's like, what book? (laughs) Um, So it wasn't her. Um, And then it just kept selling. And that's, um, and so it was, it was amazing. I mean, I was thrilled. I use my book as my resource as an interpreter. Um, Many other people did and wrote great reviews. Um, except many people also wrote some bad reviews. Um, people said that this is a great resource, um, but it really needs an editor. Looks like it wasn't edited. And I was like, yeah, I know. Right. Um, and some people were helpful enough to even put up pictures of the word redundancies or misspellings. And of course, that's the most helpful review on Amazon is those pictures of exactly where my errors were. Mm. Um, And yeah, I didn't use an editor. I should have. That was a huge mistake. But then again, remember, I thought that nobody was going to buy this book. Um, So I did finally correct that mistake. During COVID, I hired an editor um, and I released a second edition. Um, wish I could have done it sooner because talk about branding the interpreter. It just really killed me having those. I'm a perfectionist and having those bad reviews out there just, just killed me. Um, but it took a long time with the editor. I probably spent another hundred hours, um, republished the book. And it was actually good that I waited because I was able to incorporate a glossary for COVID terms. Wow. So worked out well in the end. What is the title of the book, Annalisa, for those that are like eager to know? It's called intuitive interpreting. Why intuitive? 
because you basically, it's not a full scale dictionary. Again, it's those 10% of words that I've, that I curated um, that you would not recognize or know just the really, really nitty gritty, highly technical medical terms that are not cognates that are not easily recognizable. Um, so the way I market it is that it's a very discreet, quick reference. You don't, if you come across a medical term, if you're in a bone marrow biopsy session, which I have been, and you need to look something, you need to look up marrow very quickly. You're not flipping through a huge dictionary to find that. And you're not flipping through a small dictionary that probably isn't going to have that word because it's too technical. So you have just a curated list of quick reference terms that are the terms that you will need. That is so great. There you have it, guys. Intuitive interpreting. And you can find that on Amazon. The uh, book was self-published. And I just thought, you know, in addition to it being an excellent resource, um, I just thought it was such a great story of, of taking that deliberate action, that inspired action, no matter what the reasoning behind it is. Uh, you know, Annalisa's experience was because it was a, a school thing, but she put something together. She identified a gap. She took that inspired action. She published, probably closed her eyes and hit that publish. Like, and I remember that vividly for even the podcast, right? Like <laughs> we'll polish along the way. And yet it's something that people have accepted as a resource in their careers. And um, that for me, I, I feel even just that, you know, the people that you assisted because there wasn't anything out there for them and that they were able to tap into the resource. Imperfect as it may have been, it was still a resource nonetheless. And then you got that constructive criticism that came through. So, you know, it helped you to, to improve for you to realize yeah. that it needed improvement. And then you went out there and, and improved it. Uh, so thank you for sharing that story. I'm going to make sure to include that link in the episode notes so that everyone that would like to um, find that resource can do so easily. Annalisa, I'd like to move into the topic of technology in the profession, because I know that uh, now you've got experience with interpreting in the medical field. Uh, you've got experience with being a certified interpreter, understanding the role of the interpreter, um, the role of the language professional. I appreciated the fact that you mentioned that I figured that because I knew Spanish, you know, this was going to be something that you could easily move into or transition into when you were first starting a, your, your volunteering at the hospital and, and accepting, acknowledging, and moving into the fact that you needed training. But within the years, you've also identified other things uh, in support of the role, aside from a glossary. You know, you've identified now the need for technology. And I'd like to bring in an article that, that I found with Thrive Global, and it's entitled Walk the Talk. And I, I'd like to quote you on this, and then we're going to get into this conversation because I feel like it's such an important conversation that mentioning it just once isn't enough. And so bear with me as I read a part of this article, and I'll make sure to include the links uh, for those that would like to read it in its entirety. It says, AI is generating biased output that is a mirror on our human biases. Data is shaped by the ideology of those who it maps, those who create it and those who pay for it. You go on to say that as technology is integrated into every facet of our daily lives, that we're seeing that it's not integrated fairly. Social media can amplify bias and power inequalities. Artificial intelligence systems can have bias, meaning that they replicate the inequities of the past, lock them in, and even amplify them going forward. Amazon shut down its AI-based recruiting tool for discriminated against women. Google had to restrain its image algorithm that offensively depicted races. Facebook served up biased value decisions and ad targeting. Chatbox through racial slurs, facial recognition algorithms perform best on white male faces, leaving out the rest of us. But then you also say that it is not productive to be on the defensive for the industry, right? With regards to technology, that we should be on the offensive 
admitting that it is good, and that as linguists, we should be educating the users on the right input and emphasizing the complementary or niche roles of human interpreters. With written and audio content exploding exponentially and demand to consume in it more and more languages, there is plenty of TNI opportunity for both the machines and the humans. And the humans are not doing a great job of selling themselves in what they can uniquely bring to the table. Now, I know that was a mouthful, but I know also that it was Oh man, it just it just totally hit and resonated with me. And I really want to expand on this. So let's get into this topic, Annalisa. I know you're passionate about this specifically. What would you like to add with regards to this conversation? Yes, I am. And I have to say that I am not as an interpreter. Um, I am certified, I think, in level one trade-offs from my grad school days, but um I have not really pursued that line. I'm more of a cultural consultant who focuses on uh, technology in business. Um, but what I see in the language industry is that um, so many qualified language professionals um, are either afraid of machine translation and, and AI and it taking over or are just very defensive about it. Um, you know, all you'll see on Twitter and Facebook from linguists is kind of these little memes with Google Translate mistakes and look how bad it is and humans are so much better. Um, and I think it's time that, you know, we as language professionals kind of step up and, and acknowledge, I mean, I will be the first to say that Google Translate is excellent. It's a great option. Does it match human translation? Not yet, but it actually may come pretty close um, someday soon. Um, but at the same time, the language industry is booming. I mean, like you quoted there, um, content is exploding, whether in you know audio form, video form, text form, we're seeing an explosion of content and especially of content across languages. So this language pie is just getting bigger and bigger. And even if we were to say that 90% of it was done by machines, that remaining 10% that humans have to do is only getting bigger. Um, and also, you know, I like to say that the internet has a language problem because about 50% um, of uh, internet content is in English, but only 25% of the world speaks English. So that is a gap that is going to need to be bridged going forward. Um, there is huge demand to translate that content. And of course, everybody in the industry, we're all going to complain that, well, the wages are low and we're not recognized, but, um, you know, that's, isn't that true of, you know, teachers or many skilled industries and it's, that's not unique to, to translation. So I can't take on that battle. Um, but what I can say is that for interpreters, um, the difference is that, I mean, just think of the landscape we're faced with, that with the amount, look at Netflix. I mean, the um, how many people have now watched um, a K-drama or a series in Korean or you've watched Squid Games or Money Heist um, with subtitles or dubbed, whereas 10 years ago, we didn't have access to that kind of content. So that's all the kind of content that needs translated. Um, and so I think that translators and interpreters have become even more important for that. Um, and at the same time, I think our role is becoming more prominent. Have you actually seen this um, this hashtag on Twitter? I think it started out as hashtag name the translator. And there's actually one for hashtag name the interpreter. Um, and this is basically um, calling out um, publications or, or recognizing, for instance, a TED Talk in Bath um, when they were showing the TED talk, they started out with a screen showing each of the interpreters for each language and their name. Um, and so that again, gets the hashtag name the interpreter. And when, when people don't name the translator or name the interpreter, then, you know, on Twitter, people will call them out like, Hey, hashtag name the translator. Wow. Um, 
So this is giving the industry more recognition. It's, it's becoming, you know, the translators and interpreters are no longer just in the shadows and anonymous. I mean, Amazon breaks them out along with the authors on the books. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we're, we need to focus, you know, on that side of the recognition and also acknowledge where Google Translate could be fine. I mean, if you're, I have my snack here, if you're translating a list of ingredients in food, probably Google Translate is fine for that. If you're translating a song, then it's not. So that there's a place for human translation. There's a place for machine translation. And the place is getting bigger. The thing that that's coming up right now, I mean, all kinds of things are coming up right now, but specifically in terms of aligning ourselves with technology and with the companies that are producing this very specific technology uh, and, and creating these niches in specializing as language professionals, right? And something that we're really passionate about and then being able to put ourselves out there as the experts, if you will. I know nowadays no one really likes that word, but as the person that can perhaps give more information, accurate information, as opposed to those that are, you know, that are flying, flying blind with regards to this topic. And when things like on social media, particularly um, hashtags like uh, name the translator, name the interpreter, if things come up that are inaccurate with regards to the profession and being on the offensive, like you mentioned, uh, would, would mean like coming out and saying, actually, this is the right information, right? Um, actually, this would be accurate in the topic of translation so that not just the companies that are potentially in the wrong about the topic, but also the audience that don't understand necessarily the role. And I'm thinking specifically about the Netflix series of Squid Game and the and the localization and things like that. When this one individual came out, native speaker, and you know, posted a video with regards to how much uh, cultural differences there was with the sub, uh, subtitled translations, mm-hmm. right? And and then you had few, maybe um, I'm not sure how how many you know potentially localizers came out or uh, subtitlers came out. Uh, I can think of one one in particular, but that actually gave the reasoning why. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. see as much content with regards to that, to really explaining yeah. to the audience why it took place in that way. And so I'm I'm thinking with regards to what you just mentioned, those are types of things that we could actually be doing to inform, you know, not just the companies, but our audience, would you say? Right. Yeah. I, I think in that case, what happened is that that... I'm not sure if she was an influencer that uh, Twitter account was using the automated kind of closed captioning translation and not the official subtitling. Mm. Um, in that case, I think that that's what happened. And, you know, there is, uh, I mean, many subtitles, there are cases where subtitles are done um, through machine translation. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. in the more, in the more, and that and that's changing. See, that's something where the quality is getting better. And so that's where there's room in the pie for everybody. Right. Um, you know, it used to be that translation or interpretation in, in any context, everybody wanted a literal translation, right? And it's it's not like that anymore. I mean, now what I mean, some what my marketing clients want is they don't want a translation, you know, they want something that has functional equivalence that resonates the same in the target language. So that may take transcreation, that may take a complete reworking. It's not just about translation anymore because the world has gotten more complicated and we're also you know, approaching more people um, in their cultural context and more diverse cultural contexts. So whereas it used to be about kind of global campaigns and westernization of of culture and, you know, Coca-Cola and Levi's. It's now more about, you know, um, local brands, local context, reaching people in their context. And, and, you know, that means a pull down menu of many, many languages and much more content uh, to be translated. In fact, you can see this because, you know, in the old days, it used to be about translation errors. You know, we'd see things, you know, like the classic case of the Chevy Nova, the Nova, and those were the big, you know, translation um, lost in translation stories. And now 
you know, you really don't see that. You have better translation, but now what we're concerned about is the cultural missteps, you know, cultural appropriation, you know, cultural taboos. And that is what is becoming more and more important to us. I mean, because for many reasons, you know, we, we value those intentions. So that is the kind of thing that is going to require um, human translation. And again, like you were saying in that article, just to tease out the biases and in translation, all of that requires a human component and it's getting better. I mean, take a look at Money Heist on Netflix. Um, they have excellent subtitles and they got better over time. The first few series um, or episodes were the, um, subtitling was good, but then it got great. I mean, the subtitling is amazing. That is clearly done, not just by a human, but by a very skilled human. Um, they have localization. Like there was one scene, um, where they're standing on a bridge and, and the two men are talking and he says, and somebody was sick or he, I think he was talking about his terminal cancer diagnosis. And he says, well, I'm like a cat with seven lives um, because in Spanish, you know, the cat has siete vidas um, and in English, the cat has nine lives. And I looked <laughs> Nick at those the cat lives longer. <laughs> yeah. I looked at those subtitles and they translated his statement about a cat having seven lives to a cat having nine lives. So that's not just translation, that's localization so that it resonates in the same culture and subtitles are getting that good which demands, you know, really qualified um, interpreters to, to, to do that. I mean, I, like I mentioned, you know, as you speak, my mind is just going and going and, and thinking of all the different um, specializations that people could move into transition into with regards to mm -hmm. this topic of technology. I mean, we're only, you're only talking about one thing, you know, we're talking about filmmaking, right? And we're talking about localization and subtitles. Um, but like that, there are so, 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 so many things that require the trained uh, translator, localizer, you know, uh, all of these things that we're perhaps not seen because we're so focused on the quote unquote negative aspects, you know, like that is, they should be getting somebody that is trained and whoever you're using, it's, it's almost like I'm bringing it down to, to very simplified example, but going to an administrator for us in our school district and, and, you know, just dumping a bunch of complaints, you know, on the table, what are they supposed to do with that? As opposed to when we come in with solutions to some of these key uh, components or key things that we find are really creating an issue for our limited English proficient or emergent bilinguals uh, families in the school system, right? It's, it's you, when you take that into um, the macro level, it's the same thing. We're talking mm -hmm. about only complaining and not providing solutions. So I think as an industry, as a profession, we need to do better in that aspect. We need, we do need to come out. And I know that I'm generalizing here. I know there are pockets of language professionals that do indeed do that organizations, associations, excuse me as well, but it's not loud enough is what I'm getting at. Right? right. If the complaints are, you know, louder than the solution, then there's a gap. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I mean, there are, just like you said, that is, that is only the beginning because we're still focusing on subtitling and interpreting and translation, but really the kind of next step up to go a little higher on the food chain. And for those that also are, you know, worried about the economics of being a translator and interpreter and working in the gig economy. I mean, in Silicon Valley, Facebook has a huge team of linguists, all these companies are hiring linguists to work along with um, software developers um, on the design side. I mean, imagine now how much content, digital content we have, you know, websites and all kinds of interfaces and platforms and apps that need to be not only translated, but localized mm -hmm. for different countries and linguistic and cultural context. So that's a whole other field of user interface design, user experience design, also called UI and UX. So it's, it's more than just translating it. It's, you know, 
changing the currencies, changing the local payment forms. I mean, um, this is a lot of what I work with my clients on. You know, if you're going to take your app and go to Brazil, you know, you're not going to necessarily click on the live chat button. You're going to click on the WhatsApp button and there'll be a little WhatsApp icon because you take the conversation offline and continue it on WhatsApp. Um, you know, there is so much that needs localized along with, you know, that's an example of a contact form, payment mechanisms. It's not just translating the text and changing the currency, but it's what are the currency mechanisms in that country? What are the apps that are being used? Is it PayPal? Is it Venmo? Is it a bank app? Um, and I mean, everything it's, it's down to everything. It's really colors need localized, you know, red um, for us is kind of going negative in the red or stop. Whereas in China, this is a color of, of celebration and money. Um, even animals, you know, their sounds need translated, you know, um, a frog doesn't go ribbit in every language and an ambulance when you transcribe that sound into digital is not, is not the same. Um, so that's, those are all examples of, of localization. And that is a completely um, different industry that is just the next step up for a linguist to tap into. Such important points. And, and it's important to consider, right, that as our world is expanding or as uh, we're globalizing, what are we doing as individuals to expand? You know, what are we doing as individuals to to help expand ourselves and our skill sets and what we have to offer and how we can evolve with this evolving world, with the evolution of technology and things like that? What are we doing as professionals? Just such an important topic and one that I do not get tired of talking about on this platform. But we are not just going to sit here and complain about what we should do. I'd like to ask you directly, Annalisa, what you would recommend for both seasoned interpreters as well as the new generation interpreters, what we can do better in order to complement our roles through the integration of technology. Um, you know, I would say it, it's it's funny because sometimes I think we're all as um, language professionals, you know, we're on the people side, the communication side, the social sciences side, which is kind of the other side of the tracks from, you know, technology and, um, and, and those kind of, and it's kind of almost kind of feels very unnatural to us as kind of people and language people. But I think even if, you know, you're not ready to take the step into being certified in certain machine translation platforms, because it may just be too big of a step or not one you're ready to take immediately. You know, there's so many ways you can just take a first step. I mean, I, at the end of every year, um, and like last year at the end of the year, I, I actually still haven't done it. So I have to get on it. But every year I just force myself to start on a new platform, a new app. So I'll force myself to get on Twitter, to get on TikTok, to get on Snapchat. And I try to just take on a new one every year um, because then I feel like technology is not leaving me behind. Mm. Um, also all of these platforms just, you know, open up, um, so much learning into new areas, you know, TikTok for an access into culture and, you know, um, Twitter, I mean, there's, um, on Twitter, there's entire segments of linguist Twitter where, I mean, you can learn so much. So each one of these is kind of a new window into the world. Um, also, from my perspective, like we were just talking about um, localization of apps and user experience, I love to see how the user interface is just so different on each of these apps. Um, so I would say that take on a new app every year and then um, we're linguists, right? I mean, learn a new language. It's easier for us than it is for monolinguals. Um, so if you take on a new language, you know, sometimes, okay, maybe you're not ready to go out and learn Mandarin or Arabic if you're speaking a romance language. But, you know, I tried last year to get some Italian back. I mean, for me, it's like starting from zero at this point. And so I just, um, you know, switched my Facebook into Italian, switched my GPS into Italian. And so it wasn't like an extra step I had to take. It was just there in the background and I started recognizing it. 
Um, so you can do little things like that and just with technology, incorporate them into your daily life. Um, and then before you know it, you may have a new language under your belt. Um, social media has really democratized access to everything. So, you know, you don't have to be at a university or someplace where you can join an organization. You can jump into a Facebook group for interpreters and translators and all of a sudden have access to this really valuable forum of people. And also, you know, even Twitter. Um, I spend most of my time on Twitter. Um, and, you know, many people, again, there's that positive and the negative, like you were saying, a lot of people say, oh, Twitter is such a cesspool of, you know, just negative politics bashing. But I don't find it that way at all. I mean, the people that I follow are in technology and linguists. And, you know, I find out things on Twitter that I probably would not have read in the news. For instance, in November, um, Spain launched um, to the public the world's third largest language model. So again, these are the models that train artificial intelligence and machine translation. And the largest ones in the world are in Mandarin and English. And now there is a massive language model in Spanish. Um, I don't think I would have even seen that if I wasn't on Twitter um, because of the linguists that I follow. And, um, and in the end, I get much of my news there because it's targeted to what I'm interested in, which is not necessarily politics or the economy, but it's really that intersection of language and technology, which I can find so easily on Twitter. And Elisa, this conversation has been extraordinary. And before closing out, I'd like to give the audience a little taste of what you're currently doing, just mm -hmm. because I, I like to show and demonstrate how you were able to utilize this experience and really fuse uh, your current role with your past experiences. Sure. I mean, it's opened so many different doors and I work in so many different contexts. If I think... Um, to my next year, what's on my schedule um, starting this year. Um, in the new year, I'm giving a talk to a insurance industry group. And you would think, what does insurance have to do with language and culture? But at the same time, you're structuring insurance products for different markets, for different needs. Um, many of these are cultural and require more adaptation than simply translation. Um, I also do a lot of work with... Um, even information companies and technology companies on even some things like privacy policy, um, adapting their privacy policy for different markets, because, you know, privacy in itself is really, it's not a basic human need. It's a cultural construct, you know, um, and in many cultures, um, privacy, it doesn't really exist the same way we think about it from an individual perspective in the U.S. And in many parts of the world, privacy is, is approached from um, a more familial or group perspective. Um, I'm doing, um, I get to travel a lot for my job, which is great. I also get to work remotely. So I've been um, working. I actually relocated to Spain where I've been uh, working as a global nomad um, working remotely and taking advantage of that opportunity this year while everything stays remote. Um, so I'm actually doing my first real live conference. It's a user experience, a UX conference in, um, in Lisbon, um, where I'm giving a training session to um, app designers about kind of things we were just talking about, about localizing um, attributes and functionality of their apps for for different markets. And so I'll go to conference venues and give sessions like that. Um, and then I also occasionally write articles and, um, and I still work, you know, very part-time as an interpreter and a translator, just because I love the flexibility that it gives me um, that I can work from anywhere. Um, and I also need to, to keep up my language skills and renew my certification, because that's one of the most valuable things that I did was getting certified. It opened up, um, just a lot of doors for me and, um, just made applying for jobs, um, especially in the gig economy with flexibility, much, much easier when you don't have that, you know, human connection or, any connection at all to um, to have that certification that just speaks for your skills. So I have to work on keeping that up too. 
Um, a couple of things I think I was just talking about certification is very important, especially in a digital age when your credentials speak for you. Um, learn, uh, I think we touched on that a bit, learn another language. I have to say that I'm certified in Spanish, but um, I find my Portuguese skills more marketable because again, it's a more niche language. So try to expand into these niche categories because these, as I was talking about that, the internet has a language problem and 50% of the content is in English, but only 25% of the world are English speakers. It are, it's these languages of lesser diffusion that really need some love and attention. And that's where the demand is going to be. So if you're starting out, I would go for a language of lesser diffusion because, you know, you may think Spanish is more marketable because it's more widely spoken, but it's those niche languages that'll, that'll get you in the door sometimes. Wonderful. Anything you'd like to close with to conclude this great conversation? Um, if you'd like to take my recommendation and get on Twitter and this in the new year, you can follow me at because culture. So that's at because culture. Um, and you can follow me there. And, um, every day I'm just tweeting about, um, the cultural issues in business and technology and kind of teasing them out of all the world events, because like I say, it's all because of culture. Absolutely. And, and in addition to Twitter, where else can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? Um, I'm on LinkedIn under Annalisa Nash Fernandez. And then of course, my book is Intuitive Interpreting on Amazon. I'll make sure to include those links in the episode notes. Annalisa, it's been such a privilege and a pleasure and honor to have had you on the show Thank you so much for being here today and for sharing your incredible knowledge with this audience. I very much appreciate you and your time. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Mary. It was a pleasure to be here. And like I said, big fan of the podcast. So I really am looking forward to your next season. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com and click on the connect with me tab. You can also stay connected on social media. Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Brand the Interpreter or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.